I was thinking um, in this uh, last week, I was thinking, I haven't done this for a while, <laughs> preached, hope I can remember how to do it. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we've been reminded of your goodness and your greatness and your wonder and your love. We've been reminded how you work in individual lives. You deal with us personally. But you draw us into this family that we call the church, brothers and sisters of Christ. And Father, we thank you now that we remind ourselves that you're a God who speaks. And you speak into our lives and you speak to us. And you speak words that are words of life and even when they cut deeply into us, they are words that you intend for our good. They come out of your love. Your desire is that we should become the people you made us to be. And so, Father, we ask that you will help us this morning to hear what it is you're saying to us, to us as the family of Jesus Christ here at St. Stephen's and to us individually. And, Father, we pray that by the work of your Spirit, we would go out this morning changed, made more like the Lord Jesus for his glory, we pray. Amen. Just a few weeks before I headed off to South Africa, uh, the news broke that a significant church leader had stepped down from his ministry. He'd resigned under a cloud. As the weeks have gone on, that story has un unfolded into an ever-descending spiral of tragedy. I have no idea of what's gone on, but I do know, I do know that damage, serious damage has been done to the name of Jesus Christ and to the church of Jesus Christ. And for me, that church leader, even though we've always lived on different continents and even though I've only ever been in the same room as him on a handful of occasions, particularly in the first years when I became a church leader, he was the unseen voice in my head for so much of the time. He was a mentor to me. I learned so much from him. I was inspired by him. I was challenged by him. I was provoked to step out of my comfort zone and to trust God for what God could and would do. I was challenged to believe in a God who can be trusted. I was challenged to believe in a God who changes things. I was challenged to believe in the importance of the local church at a level that was inspirational. And as that story of his resignation and 
the subsequent details have emerged. It's made me ask her all kinds of questions. Questions about my ministry. Questions about the church. Questions about the reality of the gospel. People like me, church leaders, we stand up in front of our people and we say the gospel changes lives. The more compelling the preacher is, the more that impacts people. And this guy was a person, is a person of extraordinary ability and impact. He has impacted tens of thousands of lives. And so I asked myself the question, because I know how easy it is to stand in front of people and hype things. If anybody has even a slight gift of communication, then they're able to present things in compelling ways. And when you speak to people, you want people to be changed and you want people to be impacted. And it's very, very easy to overstate things or to package things in a way that are little more than rhetoric. So I ask myself the question, is the gospel we preach true? Or is it little more than the celebrity and the shallowness of the celebrity on which sometimes it's articulated? Is it real? Does it really change lives? And if it really changes lives, then what about people like me who stand up in front of people like you across the world and say that the gospel changes lives? What does it mean when you see in leaders a lack of integrity? Because if it doesn't work for us, you may ask yourself the question, what can I, how can I believe it will work for me? Maybe you've asked some of those questions yourself. Maybe you've seen things going on in churches and it's made you ask questions about churches and about what it means to be part of the church of Jesus Christ. I, I hear from time to time stories of people whose experience of church is that instead of causing them to flourish in their relationship with Jesus Christ, it has crushed their souls and dried them out. Instead of hearing the truth spoken in love, and the truth can be incredibly devastating, because the truth of the gospel addresses our sinfulness, and that will always be, always be at some point a challenge to us, because the gospel will say you need to change and you need to change by the power of the Spirit and you need to change through repentance. I don't know when repentance became easy. It isn't. So the gospel will always challenge us. But it's the truth spoken in love and sometimes I hear stories that make me think that the truth in some of our churches is being used as a weapon in order to, to control the institution. 
and there are damaged people all over the place. So here are some reflections I want to give to you this morning. I've been reflecting on them as I've been away over these last weeks. Number one, you are not your gifts. Gifts are a very, very poor measure of spiritual health of who you are as a new creation in Jesus Christ. Because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. God has brought you into his family, into his kingdom, and he is changing you and making you more like Jesus Christ. But gifts are a really poor measure of how that's going. If somebody has the gift of preaching and teaching... If they're standing in front of 25,000 people, that is not who they are. Or 25 people. If you have the gift of evangelism and you are using that gift and you feel that life is amazing and wonderful and you are being blessed through that and God is using you, that is not a measure of who you are. It's gift. If you're a musician, if you have the gift of giving, God has blessed you and you're able to give. Gifts are what they say on the tin. They're gifts. They're being conformed to Christ, becoming more like Him, growing in holiness. That's a different issue. And that's what counts. God does not assess us by our gifts. God does not look at those things. He simply says, those are gifts. I gave them to you. But holiness, holiness, we're involved in that. Developing character. Growing in our relationship with Jesus Christ. You're not your gifts. Please don't misunderstand me. God gives us gifts in order to use them because the church needs gifts. It's not an either or. I I love the, the phrase that Eric Little, the runner, turned missionary. Think chariots of fire, you know. He once said, or at least in the movie he said it, He said, when I run, I feel his pleasure. And that's right. When you are using your gifts to the fullest potential, you should feel more alive than at any other moment because God has given you those gifts and he intends you to use them. But you are not your gifts. You are not your gifts. It's possible to hide behind gifts. And the more gifted a person is, and certainly the more in the public image that somebody is, the easier it can be to hide, to give a different impression from from where we are really at with the Lord Jesus. You're not your gifts. Second thing is the depth of sin. 
You may remember, I've used this before, and I pinched it from Nicky Gumble, I think. Um, who quoted D.H. Lawrence, who apparently said, if only we could have two lives, the first in which to kind of make all the messes, and then the second one to learn from it and do it over again and get it right. And, and there is a sense in which that's true. I mean, which, what, which of us would not have loved to have known about the GFC beforehand? I mean, wouldn't that have been great? I would have made all kinds of different decisions if I were able to live my life again. So at one level, that's true. But at the deepest level, it's profoundly wrong. I know that for myself, if I had my life over again, I would not necessarily live a better life, a more godly life. I think it would be the, the reverse. To the extent I understand the sinfulness of my own heart, I know that there are things that I didn't do because of fear, because of insecurity. But if I had the opportunity to do them again because I have my life over again, I fear, knowing what I know now, that I would make some of those decisions, sinful decisions, Decisions that would have got me into relationships which would have been disastrous. You see, I don't think we understand the depth of sin in our hearts. The heart, Jeremiah says, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The sinfulness of sin. And it's in all of us. We don't need Jesus simply to get us to heaven. We need Jesus to save us. That's the language that the Bible uses. It's about salvation. It's about rescue. It's about taking from death to life. Jesus did not come simply to tweak our middle-class morality and wrap our knuckles and say, well, there are some changes and adjustments that you need to make. He came to save us because of the depth of sin in us and the destructive nature of sin in us. Almighty and most merciful God, we have erred from you and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have done those things that we ought not to have done and we've not done those things that we ought to have done. And there is no health in us. Those are the words of the Anglican prayer of confession in the book of Common Prayer. Perhaps we ought to say them more often. You're not your gifts. Use them. We need them in the body of Christ. Desperately need people to use their gifts. But you're not your gifts. Don't measure yourself by your gifts. Use them well. Develop them, but don't measure yourself by your gifts. Don't forget the sinfulness of sin. Thirdly, there is no such thing as private sin for the Christian. No such thing.
what we are when we're on our own. What we do when nobody else watches us. Our relationships that are private relationships are not private for the Christian. We are to live lives of integrity where there is no distinction between the private life and the public life, between what we are up front and what we are when we're on our own or in our families or at work or amongst our friends. There's no such thing as private sin. And at the end of the day, at some point, our private sins will affect the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, let there not be a hint of sexual immorality. Not even a hint. What goes on in private impacts the body of Christ, and it's not just about sex. He talks about the way we speak to each other, about our language, about our minds. And he goes on to say towards the end of the first part of chapter 5, he talks about light and darkness and how what is in the dark will be exposed by the light. What you are in private will eventually impact what we are as the people of God. There's no such thing as private sin. Fourth thing. Sometimes I hear people talking about the fact that we have quite often in our Anglican churches, and we do it here at St. Stephen's, we've not done it today, but we have a confession. And I've heard people be very, very dismissive and scornful of the confession. Why do you have a confession? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you come from darkness to life, you're in the kingdom of God. Why do we need this reminder every week of what we once were? To be honest, it makes me cross when people say that, amongst other things. It's true when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you change from darkness to life. You're brought into the kingdom, and then when we sin, we don't stop being children of God. We don't fall out of the kingdom. But the confession that we say is a reminder every time we say it's of the truth of the gospel that what we are as part of God's kingdom, a part of, as part of his family, is entirely grace. There is no health in us. But God is merciful. And he sent Christ. And we've been washed and we've been cleansed. And every time we say the confession, we ought to say, isn't that amazing? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. The confession is meant to be an encouragement. But it's also meant to be a reminder that we are to live a life of repentance. Because you see, we start a journey when we start our relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's a relationship where things are being exposed in our lives. There are times in our life when we will drift in our relationship with God. It's like we have him as our father, but we're like the child who locks himself in or herself in her room. Never communicates with the father, but only with the screen. Does that happen in some of your houses? 
Does that mean if you're a parent that that child is less your child, that you're less a mother or a father? Of course not. But the relationship may change. And sometimes we're like that with God. We lock ourselves in our rooms and we do the equivalent of engaging with the screen but not engaging with our Father. Christian life is a life of repentance. Four things then. About sin. About ourselves. You said that's very depressing. (laughs) Did you think any good things? (laughs) Yeah, I did, actually. I did. So, I want to say something about the vision for the church. Jesus' vision, his picture, his description of the church. This often frustrating, sometimes dangerous place to be. In Ephesians chapter 5, and some of you are groaning because you think, Graham, do you know anything about it apart from Ephesians? <laughs> There's this amazing depiction in Ephesians chapter 5, and I'd like to turn to it. And I know I preached on this not too long ago, but actually I've discovered something that I didn't, hadn't articulated last time. So this is, this is new, okay? Trust me. Ephesians chapter 5, and it's on page 1170. Six, page 1176. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. Bottom of the page, page 1126. Husbands, Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. It's an amazing picture, isn't it? It's it's kind of the wedding imagery. You're at a wedding and... The cry goes out that the bride has arrived and you all turn around and you look at this beautiful, amazing figure. That's the imagery. That's what we are and that's what we will be as the church of Jesus Christ. This often frustrating entity, this very broken entity called the church is the bride of Christ. But do you know there's a backstory? There's a backstory. I don't think I told you the backstory last time. That bride has a backstory. I want you to imagine you grew up in a town and you went to school there and there was a a young girl who came, she was in one of the other classes, so you knew her a bit. She was always beautifully turned out. She always wore the school uniform. She was always very poised. It turns out that she'd been adopted, and her parents looked after her really well and always made sure that she was 
the best that she could be. And you'd see her around from time to time and you saw how she grew. And then you began to notice that she was getting in with a bad crowd and she was beginning to drift and she didn't look quite as happy or as fulfilled or as radiant as she was. And things get worse and she gets in with a really bad crowd and you realize that she's sleeping around and life isn't great. And, and then you move away. And every so often you go back to the town and occasionally you'll run into her. And then one day you hear that she's got married. And she's got married to a guy in the town who you know, who is just from this wonderful family. And you know him as a guy of integrity and you're really amazed that he should marry this girl. You go back to the town again and you see her once, twice, and sometimes she's with her husband, and, and then you see that they've had a couple of children, and uh, you see her pushing a pram, and, and then a bit later you hear some stories about her. Things are not working out in the marriage and then you hear that she's left her husband and she's left her children and she's got into drugs and she's selling her body to pay for the drugs. And one day you're back in the town and you see her walking down the street. You scarcely recognized her at first. Her hair is thin. Some of it's fallen out. Her eyes are dark and sunken. She's drawn and haggard. She's staggering uneasily down the street. There are bruises on her face and on her arms. She's a complete mess. And then you hear that she's been picked up off the street. She's in the gutter. She's been beaten up by her pimp and left bleeding in the gutter. Sometime later, you get an invitation. It's an invitation to a celebration. And so you go. And it looks as if the whole town has been invited and turned out, and there they are. And there's a guy at the front, and you recognize him, and he's looking a little nervous, perhaps. And then the cry goes up, she's here, she's here. And you turn around and you see this amazing, beautiful, poised young woman. Her hair is luxuriant, her eyes are sparkling. She's the picture of radiance and beauty and loveliness. And there's an audible gasp from the entire group of people there. What an extraordinary young lady she is. And then you realize, it's that girl that you knew at school. The adopted child. The child who'd got into bad company. 
the child who'd got into prostitution and drugs, the child who as a young woman had left her husband and sold her body, abandoned her children, who'd ended up in the gutter. And here she is, utterly transformed. And you know the thing that sticks in your mind even more than that? You look at the front and you see the man who is her husband. And there is enormous, radiant smile on his face. That's the backstory of that young woman. That's the backstory of the bride of Christ. That's the backstory for every single one of us. To use the language of the Old Testament, it's prostitution and adultery. But what's happened to us is like what happened to that young woman. Her husband took her back. And he started to wash her and bathed her and he kissed her wounds. And he spoke to her words of reassurance, words of love. I love you. I love you. I love you. And gradually she was restored until that day, until that day when she comes to him radiant and beautiful and lovely. That's God's vision for us. That's who we are. That's who we are now in his eyes. That's what we will be. And notice it's to present her to himself. You could put it like this. The happiest day in the life of Jesus Christ will be the day when he welcomes us home as his bride. That he might present her to himself. That's the church. So the last thing I want to say is this. Love the church. Don't give up on the church. It's the bride of Christ. And loving the church doesn't mean loving the institution. It means loving people. And loving people means using your gifts. Some people have gifts that they don't use. They don't use them to do whatever it is that they're called to do to build up the people of God, to become what Jesus wants them to be. Because you see, all of this is what God does through Jesus. He dies for the church. You and I can't do that. We cannot save the church or anybody or ourselves. He does it. But we are involved in this process of enabling one another to grow and become more like Christ. For the church to become more and more the people of God. For the church to be the church means your involvement and mine. So use your gifts. And it's not just about gifts. It's really simple stuff. Ephesians 4 and 5, most of it is about really ordinary things. And I don't know whether Paul had Psalm 15 in mind, but there are echoes of Psalm 15 in Ephesians 4 and 5. 
speaking the truth to one another, building one another up, speaking with integrity, encouraging each other, helping people, supporting one another. You and I are the church. And we are called into this relationship with God through Jesus Christ in order to enable the church to be the church. Don't give up on the church. Love it. It's the bride of Christ. I started with a depressing story. A sobering reflection. And I think sometimes we need sober reflection because we're involved in a spiritual battle. So we need to be careful. We need to be wise, as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. We need to keep our own relationship with Jesus Christ close. We need to maintain accountability. None of us can be trusted to do this Christian life on our own. None of us. We need each other. But don't lose the vision. Don't lose the vision. We may not look very impressive. <laughs> but one day, people will scarcely recognize us just as they scarcely recognized that young woman as she came to that celebration. We will be glorious, amazing, and the entire creation will gasp at that point. In the meantime, love the church. So if you've got gifts, use them. Churches fail not just because leaders fail. The church is all of us. Play a part, love one another, hold one another accountable. Speak the truth, and sometimes the truth will hurt and challenge people. Say it in love, though. Because if we don't say the truth to people, we are complicit in their sin, which will destroy them and harm the church. Last thing I want to say on this. We talk rightly about evangelism. The world needs to hear the message of Jesus Christ. And we need to do that. We need to speak about Jesus. I know that at half past six on Friday they were talking about this and I just love the way that they did that on the basis that we talk about the things that we love. You know, some people support the swans and they'll talk about the swans because they love the swans. I have no idea why, but they do. Um, we talk about the things that we love. Get me going on Wagner and I'll talk to you about him. Well, his music, anyway. The greatest love is Jesus. Talking about Jesus should come out of our love, not out of compulsion. But here's the thing. Every time we mess up in the local church, every time our relationships fall apart, every time we harbor sin in the church, we undermine our evangelism 
It's not an either-or, it's a both-and. The world needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church is the hope of the world. The church, therefore, needs to be the church, and we need to play our part to enable the church to be the church. So let's do it. Let's pray. Father, we we're reminded that you speak to us. You have words that you want to say to us, and sometimes those words are hard. Sometimes they're challenging. Sometimes they address our sin. And there are sins we want to hang on to. (laughs) But Father, they're words of life. And the amazing thing is that you've entrusted to us here at St. Stephen's, to the Church of Jesus Christ, this glorious message of the gospel, which is to be lived out in our relationships with one another as we live in the presence of your Spirit and in the power of your Spirit. So please help us to play our part to enable the church to be the church. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're going to sing. Please stand as we sing.